Good morning, Rosemount Bible Church. Good morning to all of you who are assembled here physically with me. And good morning to our brothers and sisters who are watching from home or online. We, we're not physically together with you, but we want you to know that we are together in one spirit, and we think of you. Just this week, Pope Francis paid a special visit to Quebec City to follow up on a public apology made back in April. He came to establish a dialogue. He came to pursue reconciliation with Canada's indigenous peoples. If you're not familiar with this story, it's a tragic one. It involves the establishment in 1894 of the Indian residential school system, mandated by the Canadian government's Department of Indian Affairs, and executed by a wide variety of Christian denominational churches, including the Catholic Church, yes, but also the Church of England and the United Church and the Presbyterian Church and others. And for over 50 years, the missionary arms of these churches actively participated in the forceful separation of indigenous children from their homes and families. They were part in the systematic assimilation of these children against their will and against the will of their families into white English and French speaking cultures. And they're responsible for the inhuman treatment of these children due to a combination of neglect, but also deliberate abuse. In 2015, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada confirmed that over 3,200 indigenous children in this system had died. And unfortunately, due to poor record keeping, due to the intentional destruction of documents, and the ongoing discovery of mass graves that continues to this day, we'll never truly know how high that number is. This is a cause for national shame. And I wish that this were an isolated incident, but it's not. This national tragedy is just one little dot. It's one data point along an entire trend of our existence as a people, not just Canadians, humans, that indicates our tendency as a fallen people to abuse the power that we have, to abuse the authority that we have over others who are more vulnerable. Now, back in May, I had accepted the opportunity to preach on this passage that you see today on Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 9, which instructs the male households, uh, excuse me, the male head of households, how they should treat the children and the women and the slaves under their authority. I read the scriptures at that time, back in May. And while praying about it, I experienced what I can only describe as a moment of clarity from the Lord, and I, I just saw those pairings of relationships, and it, and it sort of, it just occurred to me in that moment how the relationships that we see there are based on dynamics of power. Husbands, wives, parents, children, masters, and slaves. There is an authority that's there, and a power inherent from that authority. And a risk isn't there between those who have power and those who are vulnerable under the care of that power. 
And since the time that I read that, a weight has not been lifted off of me. How passages like these, not only this passage, but passages like these, can be abused and misused to tragic ends. And so I'm going to ask for your patience today, because I'm not going to preach in great detail, verse by verse, on these nine passages. I'll touch on them briefly. But what I am going to do is preach on the totality of this portion of Paul's letter to the, to the church in Ephesus as it pertains to these couplings of, of relationships, to the authority that's given and what we're asked to do with the authority. Now, I'm, I'm warning you already, this is a 40-minute sermon, and it didn't start that way. It's probably a 60-minute sermon. And you see that there's a weird little box at the top of the screen. It's going to be there on every slide. It's a QR code. If you know what that is, you could take your phone, you could snap a picture, and you could just point it there, and it will take you to the full sermon that I've written out, my manuscript. And if it doesn't work, you can ask me for it, or you can ask someone who, for whom it did work. If you'd like to, I invite you to read the entire scope of the research and the preaching that I would have shared with you today. But time will not allow it. When the history books are written and settled for the 21st century, I believe that these first two decades will be remembered as a time of great reckoning for the misuse and abuse of power in so many walks of life. Just reflect with me for a moment on some of the shocking revelations that have only come to us in the past years. This is not ancient history. Think of the 2020 murder of George Floyd by former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin that shed light on systemic racism in policing and the use of excessive force on minorities and people of color. Think about the prevalence of labor exploitation that's infected our global supply chain so badly now that I defy you to buy a pair of sneakers or the latest iPhone or consumer electronics gadget that can't be traced back to manufacturing that, that involves wage inequalities or inadequate worker safety or child labor or even human trafficking. So much so, okay, there's a whole market that's dedicated now to ethically sourced products. People have found a way to make money out of the fact that we abuse people to make a profit. Think about the explosion of the Me Too movement in past years that's highlighted high, high-profile instances of rape and sexual abuse and sexual harassment in the workplace. And just recently, I mean, we're talking this week, news is still coming out with the revelation of hundreds of allegations and testimonials around racism and bullying and emotional, physical, and sexual abuse among hockey players in the Canadian national hockey team. Some of you might have heard of this guy. The 19th century British politician, Lord John Acton, famously wrote these words in a letter to a bishop in the Church of England. And he wrote, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power tends to corrupt. Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of people have heard of that quote. Not as many are familiar with the next part in his letter where he writes this. Great men 
are almost always bad men, even when they exercise influence and not authority. There is no worse heresy than that the office sanctifies the holder of it. Before we rush to point fingers and just judge the fallen world around us, I want us to remember that the church is no stranger to these abuses of power. And I wish that we were. Just two months ago in May, the Southern Baptist Convention's executive committee made public a 205-page document listing over 700 cases of convicted sexual abuse convicted in a court of law by Southern Baptist pastors, Sunday school teachers, camp counselors, worship leaders, bus drivers, and missionaries. In February, the Alliance World Fellowship, posthumously, after his death, they revoked its ordination of Ravi Zacharias, who many of us here at RBC have followed for such a long time for what they called a pattern of predatory behavior. After his ministry, his own ministry, published an 80-page investigative report of their own organization that confirmed ample evidence of embezzlement, coercion, manipulation, sexual abuse, rape, and the attempted cover-up of all of this. In 2014 in Seattle, Mark Driscoll resigned as lead pastor of this big Mars Hill church, and also as the founding member of both the Acts 29 missions organization and founding member of the Gospel Coalition. He resigned from it all after numerous allegations by his own church elders of bullying, intimidation, and verbally abusive behavior towards church members and staff. Now you might, might be thinking to yourselves at this point, well, Louis, yeah, th this is horrible. These are terrible things, but what does that have to do with our passage today? Yes, all these, passage, uh, all these examples of abuses of power take place on either a national or global stage. You're right. But the mindset that gives permission for these things to happen, it doesn't start there. Where do you think it starts? It starts in the home. the same home situation to which Paul is addressing in our passage today, which appears to give authority to husbands over their wives, their children, and their slaves in their household in first century Rome. What do our homes look like here in Canada? What is the home situation right now? A 2015 report from the Public Health Agency of Canada tells us that family violence and domestic abuse, listen to this, accounts for 25% of all reported crime in the country. It tells us that 30% of all women experience violence within their relationships. It tells us that 80% of all domestic violence in the country is committed against women. tells us that 32% of all Canadian adults have reported at some time in their lives to have experienced mistreatment as a child, particularly around three things, physical abuse, neglect, and witnessing spousal abuse between husband and wife, between dad and mom. 
And it tells us that 53% of elder abuse occurs at the home at the hands of family members. This week, my son, Thomas, he heard me practicing this, this part right here. And he went, I heard him go to Kelly, my wife, and he said, Mom, Dad sounds angry. Dad sounds angry. How am I supposed to feel? How do you feel? I know there's supposed to be a bit of decorum and I should put on a smile right now, but is it okay if I'm a little bit angry? Do I have your permission to be angry? I am angry. How could this happen? How can we let this happen, not only in our country, but in our churches, in our homes, our Christian families, Christian moms and dads, husbands and wives and children? I'm convinced that these abuses of power happen most likely under three conditions. Three things have to happen in order for the likelihood of this to take place. The first one, I think, happens when we don't have enough respect for the authority that we're given. I'm not saying that the authority is not there. I'm saying that we don't respect that authority and the power it gives us. Paul said in 1 Corinthians that he approaches them in his letter with fear and trembling. I'm afraid when I come up here. Somebody greeted me this morning and asked me if I was nervous. I said, yes. And they said, but Louis, you're such a good speaker. It has nothing to do with speaking. I come to you with fear and trembling because God has put something on my heart, something that I think might be offensive, which you'll find out soon enough. And I'm scared of that. What if I'm wrong? What if people won't like the message that God has? There's a responsibility on my shoulders and on the shoulders of the people who are up here bringing God's word. That is a respect, I think an appropriate respect for the weight of the authority that God has given with us. Something not to be taken lightly, not to be flippant about. The second reason I think this happens is when we resort, with, excuse me, when we resort to force when our authority is not accepted or recognized the way that we expect. Our authority is not accepted, and so we resort to force or to coercion because it's not happening the way that we want. And last, a little bit the way that Lord John Acton described at the end of his letter, we use the virtue of our authority that's given to our roles as a way to excuse or justify our behavior as the holders of that authority. It is not there to justify your bad behavior. Now, by the time you leave this church building today, I hope to demonstrate how an unbalanced teaching of Ephesians 5 and 6 can place a risk on us to end up in situations of abusive power. Not a guarantee but I believe it raises the risk of that, and I want us as a church to be aware of that. I also hope to illustrate what we can do about it by carefully and reverently examining the full passage as Paul intended. Give me a second, please, before we move on. I'd like to pray. <clears throat> Search us, God. Search us and know our hearts. Test us. 
and know our anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in us and lead us in your way everlasting. Amen. Okay, permit me to read here the entire portion of Paul's letter, exactly how the apostle would have intended it to be read by his people in Ephesus. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. I'm looking at my son right now. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. And fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and in the instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and with fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. Zondervan Publishing, which is responsible for the publication of so many Bible editions and translations and good Christian works, 
commentaries, they urge us that we not only read the Word of God, but that we study it. Study it from many contexts to fully understand and apply its creator's intent and not misuse it or abuse it based on a wrong reading or worse, just by accepting somebody else's word for it. Studying the Bible, they say, means understanding the historical context, the cultural context, the literary context, and the biblical context surrounding the passages. And today, I'd like to investigate just two of those perspectives. One is the biblical context, and the other one is the historical cultural context. Now, to truly grasp what Paul is trying to say in these passages I read you today, we need to read these passages in the context of Paul's entire letter to the Ephesians. Imagine for a moment that I wrote a letter to my dear wife, Kelly, of 22 years. And in that letter, I say, dear Kelly, this past week, traveling for work is taking an awful toll on me. I miss you so much. You really didn't have to go to all the trouble of packing my suitcase for me when you already had so much work of your own to do. I hate when you do that. When I come home, I hope to send you somewhere far away because you deserve to be pampered at your favorite spa up north. I've never wrote this letter. It's a silly example, okay? But isn't it obvious how different those highlighted words in yellow come across when you read them by themselves? It sounds like I'm the worst husband ever, and that I am mean to my wife, and that I'm a cruel person. But when you read it in the context of the whole letter, I love her. For today, I've taken the liberty of already summarizing each of the six chapters of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, with the exception of the fifth chapter, which is where this passage happens to begin. And just like theologians and Bible scholars would do in biblical criticism, we're going to assemble these chapters together just like puzzle pieces and observe how this particular passage today best reflects its author's intent in the context of the entire letter. Now, looking at these chapter summaries, Paul totally creates a sense of awe throughout chapters 1 to 3. I can recall just a couple weeks ago, our brother Christian Moras, he referred to these three chapters together as our identity in Christ. That was fantastic. Paul here reaffirms, turn off your phone please, that God has adopted us into his family. He's richly blessed us by choosing and saving and redeeming us, by including us in his family and marking us for salvation. And God then transforms us by making us alive again, raising us up, seating us in the heavenly realms, saving us by grace and creating us to do good works. And that chapter says he does all of those things in the name of Christ Jesus. God also reconciled us Jesus Christ is our peace, making Jews and Gentiles one, creating in himself a brand new humanity, building us all together into one dwelling that God calls the church. And he dwells in his church by his spirit. And through us, God says he reveals his wisdom to the world. And Paul ends this first half of his letter by praying for us, the church. He prays that we would be strengthened with power through his spirit, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith, 
He prays that we might grasp how wide and deep and long and high is the love of Jesus, that we might grasp this love that surpasses knowledge and understanding, and that we could be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Wow! Wouldn't you agree that creates a sense of awe and respect and even wonder? If that's our identity, and I completely believe that it is, what are we supposed to do with that identity? Sit on it? Paul's ongoing logic, his rhetoric in, verses four, in, in chapters 4 to 6 explains exactly what we are supposed to do with it. He goes on into increasing levels of detail about how we should live out our identity as a new humanity. He starts by explaining what it generally looks like to have God living in us, his church by his spirit. He provides some examples of what to do. He provides some examples of what not to do through contrasts. He tells us to put off the old self, to stop living like the Gentiles, to not give the devil a foothold. And he also says to put on the new self, to live a worthy life, to forgive each other. This is what Les Muirhead described as walking in Christ. We're also told to walk in the way of love and to live as children of light. That was just two weeks ago. Our brother Dave Brereton uh, introduced us to this light love family in his message on that chapter. And last week, we learned that God also says to submit, to love, to respect, and to honor, to not exasperate, but to bring up, to do the will of God, to serve, and to not threaten. And finally, next week, we will hear from my dear brother, Burlaji Jegade, who's back there on visuals today. He's going to clarify how Paul says that our struggle is not with each other. Our struggle is with the rulers and the principalities and the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So let's bring the puzzle pieces all together now and examine the edges of these puzzle pieces to see where we find the most commonality to get that beautiful final picture. As Paul establishes all that God has done for us so that he could unite us together as his new humanity, in which he is living by his spirit, preparing us to do good works, not so that we could struggle with each other, but so that we would be prepared for the struggle with the spiritual forces of evil. I have to ask myself whether the puzzle piece that's focused on hierarchy, on supremacy, on who gets to be in charge, does that best fit this picture? And I can only conclude that the answer is no. It doesn't fit. That's certainly not the whole teaching, and it's not even the emphasis of the teaching. As Paul teaches so much more in the book of Ephesians about serving like Jesus than he does on authority and hierarchy. 
based on a contextual reading of the whole letter to Ephesians, looking at the sum of the word choices, the style, the flow of the text, and the author's reasoning from one chapter to the next, I can only conclude that what does best fit here is the puzzle piece containing the single most detailed description of what it looks like when we conform our whole life's thoughts and desires and actions so that they mirror those of Jesus Christ, the living Son of God. Moving on to a, a historical cultural perspective, we need to understand here for a second that the address to husbands, fathers, masters, this didn't come out of thin air, and it certainly wasn't an invention of Paul's. This grouping of relationships and even the establishment of a social hierarchy was very well known to Paul at the time and frankly to anybody living in the Mediterranean and around Asia Minor during the first century because it described the, the Roman legal concept of the pater familias, which is Latin for the head of the household. The great reformist of the Catholic Church, Martin Luther, noted this in his large catechism back in 1529. He wrote, from antiquity, the Romans and other nations called the masters and the mistresses patris et matris familiae, that is, the house fathers and the house mothers of the household. On the screen behind me are just four of the more popular examples, among many, which I researched, that describe this classical household code format and the content, not just the relationship pairings, but also the authority insinuation during before Paul's time, during Paul's time, and after Paul's time in the first century. This will include quotations from Josephus in the second century, from Plutarch and Philo of Alexandria in the first century, and from Aristotle in the fourth century before Christ. I'm not going to read them. You can look at them as I speak and follow along at a later time. While preparing for this message, my point is that I scoured dozens of examples of Greek and Roman and Jewish texts describing correspondence between people, agricultural practices, cooking stuff, uh, philosophy, politics, law. They all each clearly exemplified that classical textual form, including husbands and wives, parents and children, and slaves and masters. Now, the 20th century Scottish theologian, George Bradford Caird, he wrote in his commentary on Ephesians that Paul is basing his instructions on a code of household rules in common use throughout the early Gentile mission of the church, adapted from Jewish and Stoic patterns. All over the ancient world, the paterfamilias wielded an unquestioned authority. What does that authority look like exactly to the people who Paul was writing to at the time in first century Rome? To answer this, I turn to the work of Scottish legal expert, David Eric Johnson. He's a solicitor for the Queen's Council. He's an honorary professor at the University of Edinburgh, and he's author on an authoritative work on Roman law in context. This is what Professor Johnson describes is the reality for husbands, wives, children, parents, and slaves in first century Rome. Let's start with women. Roman women were not legal persons. They possessed 
no property of their own, nor could they. They had no official voice in public discourse, no right to accumulate wealth. From the day she was born to the day she died, a Roman woman was subject to the concept, the legal concept of tutelage or guardianship, which started under her father and transferred to her husband until the day she died. That I kind of knew. The next part I didn't know. And, and it, 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 it changed a bit my understanding of, of Paul's writing to children, okay? Grown men, grown men with living fathers or grandfathers were still completely subject under the legal power, not the cultural power, the legal power of their paterfamilias. Their father owned the land. Their father owned all the wealth. Their father ran the business, decided what the business was, decided what the grown men would be working at and how they would do it. Now, grown men in this position probably received some kind of a stipend or a trust fund called a peculium. But the paterfamilias, the head of the household, got to decide how much that was, whether they got it on a particular time or not, whether to take the money back for any reason whatsoever. This would have been true whether a man was five years old or 15 years old or 50 years old until that head of the household died. And people that fell into financial debt that they couldn't repay would only be able to settle that debt by voluntarily submitting themselves into slavery. Also true if you were a Roman citizen. More than that, if the paterfamilias, the head of the household himself, was in financial trouble. He would have the absolute authority to sell one or all of his children to settle those debts with no legal recourse. Slaves in the time of Paul were described by Aristotle as property without a soul. They could be bought and sold as a whim. They could be returned because of a physical defect, like a shirt that had a button missing. A slave was legally required to do all the master required, cooking, cleaning, bookkeeping, teaching the children, or satisfying the master's urges in ways that you would blush to imagine. So you see, a correct understanding of the cultural context here could not possibly lead to the conclusion that Paul was introducing some new kind of hierarchy some new kind of order in family life because the Romans had already done that. Before them, the Greeks did it, and the Stoics and the Jews before them, and on and on and on throughout all of classical antiquity. For Paul to suggest that this was a new idea, the, the family order, the hierarchy, it would have been as ridiculous as him saying that the sky was blue or water was wet. He did no such thing. What did he do? Paul's purpose in Ephesians 5 and 6 was to completely transform family life by establishing the ultimate example of servanthood of Jesus and by placing each member of that family household under Jesus' example of servanthood. From a historical and cultural perspective, this household code which was once based on authority from the state, 
That's where it came from. It was turned completely upside down in Paul's writing. And it was now completely based and transformed by the example of Jesus' servanthood on the cross. Now this is radical. What I'm sharing today is not some crazy idea that I cooked up or pulled out from thin air. This is based on a consensus from the life's work of biblical scholars and theologians around the world. Gordon Fee is a professor emeritus at Regent College. He wrote, so what is in the end the thing that makes our present text so radically countercultural? What was radical lay in Paul's urging those who are filled with the Spirit and who worship Christ as Lord to have totally transformed relationships in the household. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, we quote him all the time at RBC. He wrote in his scholarly commentary, it's extremely unlikely that Paul, having warned the young Christians against conforming their lives to the present world, to now require just that of them. Not at all. Paul bases his household code on the law of the new nature. Christ releases you to be truly human, and you must now learn to express your true self according to the divine pattern, not in self-assertion, but in self-service, in self-giving. Ben Witherington III, I read him a lot. He's a renowned theologian specializing in Paul's letters. And he writes, when one compares this material, that is Ephesians, to the ancient discussion of household management, one is profoundly struck, not just by the Christian elements, but also the social engineering that is being undertaken here to what? Limit the abuse of power by the head of the household. Brothers and sisters, we learned last week how Paul compared the relationship between a husband and wife to the same relationship as Christ and the church. Paul describes it all as a mystery. And that similarity, the pattern between those relationships, was described to us by our brother Uberson as God's blueprint for families. We were also taught last week that our failure to live up to God's standards doesn't make that blueprint any less true or valid. I agree with those statements. In the context of today's message on abusive power, I want to take those statements one step further and say, we need to deal with those failures. We can't just notice them and nod and move on to the next idea. We have to address them. We have to address what Lord Acton calls the corrupting nature of power. We need to address what the Bible calls the corrupting nature of sin. We have an obligation as a church to name our corruption and to address it. And I want to suggest three things we can and we must do as a church to right any wrongs and to prevent any future abuses of power in our community. Number one, I'm convinced that the church's emphasis on authority, and I'm speaking about the global church here, the global church's emphasis on authority in its teaching disproportionately overshadows Paul's call to Jesus-like servanthood. I want to be crystal clear here for ears that might be getting hot. 
I am not saying for a second that Paul doesn't address authority. Of course he does. It's in black and white. But the emphasis of the teaching that we give must be on the servanthood of Christ, not on the authority of man. The historical cultural context supports this. Paul, the entirety of Paul's writing in the letter to the Ephesians also supports it. And the most important part to me, the life example of the Lord Jesus supports it. And I empathize that for some right now, this might be the most difficult thing that you will hear today. Perhaps more difficult than the atrocities I mentioned at the beginning of this message. I empathize, I empathize because it was uncomfortable for me at some time too. I used to hold very tightly to this authority emphasis in Ephesians 5 and 6 in my relationship with my wife early on, in my relationship with my sons. Because that was the culture, that was the teaching that I was brought up with. But we need to know our Bibles, don't we? I need to study the Word of God for myself and not rely on my traditions or my personal opinions or even the fact that it might benefit me to believe these things. Do you know in, in Acts 11, Paul describes a small community of Jewish believers in a town called Berea. Luke, the disciple of Jesus who wrote the Acts of the Apostles, he described these Bereans as people of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Why? For they received the message with great eagerness and because they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. That's what I did. In 2 Kings 22, we learn of King Josiah, who ordered for the book of God's law to be read in public for the first time in nearly 60 years. And do you know what he did when he heard God's law for the first time in 60 years? King Josiah tore his robes out of distress for how far the kingdom of Judah had strayed from God's word. He tore his robes and he repented. He changed his understanding. He changed his behavior. And that's what I did too. I don't know what each of you believes, but after today, you certainly know what I believe. You know why I believe it. You know how I came to that conclusion, and you know what I did about it, how I changed as a response. All I can say to you is to examine the scriptures to see if what the Lord has put on my heart today is true. Don't take my word for it. The only way the church can participate in true repentance, true reconciliation, and true reparation over our abuses of power that we have allowed to happen is to start by embracing Berean-like Bible study again. And then by having the courage, like King Josiah, like the Apostle Paul, to lead the change where necessary. 
The second thing that I think the church needs to do is that we together as a church need to learn how to conform our thoughts and our actions to be like those of Christ Jesus. What does that mean? In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, we're told that an argument broke out among the 12 disciples. Of all times, they had an argument at the Last Supper. I don't know what your family gatherings are like, but this was the Last Supper. There's not going to be another supper. The argument of all things was about which of those disciples was considered to be the greatest. And do you know what Jesus said in response to their argument? He said, fellas, he didn't say fellas, but I like to believe that he said something like fellas. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules should be like the one who serves. For who is greater? The one who's at the table or the one who serves? Isn't it the one who's at the table? But where am I? I am among you as one who serves. Paul underscores the servant nature of Jesus in describing Christ's relationship with the church. Remember the same relationship that we're supposed to pattern after the husband and the wife. Paul writes in Philippians 2, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of what? A servant being made in human likeness. And after that, being found in in appearance as a man, he humbled himself again by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Do you want to be a leader in your marriage? Do you? Jesus says to serve. Do you want to be respected within your family? Jesus says to serve. Do you want your children to obey you, but also to love you? Good luck. (laughs) I'm kidding. Jesus says to serve. This is how we correct, correct the corruption of God's blueprint by his own church. Here are three final thoughts about just how we can do the same thing now in our homes because we're going to go home after this. We need to make amends in our relationships where we have fought to dominate one another in our marriages over headship and submission. Earlier, I prayed the words of Psalm 139. Search me, God, and know my heart. Husbands, have you felt insecure or threatened, disrespected, or even resentful about your authority in your marriage, or how that authority is accepted? Have you provoked your children to exasperation when they inevitably challenge your authority? Oh, how many times was Jesus questioned and doubted and even disobeyed and betrayed by his own disciples? 
Have you allowed these frustrations within you to boil over into anger and then act on that anger in ways that you know to be wrong? Search me, God, and know my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me. The time to confess that sin is now. These abuses of power start because of an incomplete understanding, yes, but they take root when we believe that the authority that's been given to us by God entitles us to do anything, except, uh, anything else beyond servanthood. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's not too late to repent. To turn away from what you are now convicted is wrong in your heart and to run towards the direction of the cross. Ask forgiveness from the members in your family that you have offended, even if your offense may have been years ago. This is how we make amends. Ask the Lord to reveal how to serve your wives the way that he serves the church. Paul says it's a mystery. Let's figure that out. We don't submit to Jesus because we have to. We submit to Jesus because he loves us. So how are you loving her? To be crystal clear, also, I'm not talking about buying flowers or doing the dishes or telling her you love her. You're supposed to do that. That bar is way down here. That's the bare minimum. I am asking us to pray for God to help us as men to raise that bar high and aspire to serve your wife. Aspire not only to be willing to die for her, but more importantly, to be willing to live for her. What would that look like? For fathers, I'm the son of an alcoholic and a derelict father who left my mother and brother and I when I was just two years old after a short history of verbal and physical abuse. And you know, I, I patterned my whole life on not being like him. I have still fallen short with my sons of the standard of love and service that God has called me to. I'm guilty of saying and doing things to them in anger that I feel so sorry about. I'm guilty of using my sharp tongue to make fun of them at their own expense. And I'm guilty of not spending as much time as I should or as I could have and of not showing enough interest in their lives like they need me to. Parents, the influence and power we have over our kids is so big for a really small amount of time. And then it's gone, possibly forever. My experience so far as a father of an 18-year-old and a 16-year-old has told me that the more time that we spend with our children and the more service that we render to them and the more like Jesus that we are with them, the more likely that influence, that relationship is likely to, to last. But the more distance that we keep with our children, the more we force our authority onto them more than anything else, and the less like Jesus that we are with them, the shorter that time is likely to be. I'll close with this thought. If you're a man listening to this message right now, if you're in the church here, if you're watching online, if you're watching this months from now on a recording, 
and you find yourself in conflict with others in your house who don't accept the authority the way that you expect and that you're pushing it on them, I plead with you in the name of Jesus to stop that. Remember the words of our brother Uberson last week. He said that Jesus doesn't want the forced submission of his church. He wants its willing submission as an act of love that just reciprocates the love that he showed them on the cross and still shows us right now in this very moment. If you live in a home where there is conflict over authority and where that conflict has boiled over into some kind of physical or emotional or mental abuse, in any way, you and your loved ones need to get help today, right now, not tomorrow. That's how we stop the cycle. You need to not go another day without confessing to someone that you trust who can guide you and your family to get out of this sin. Can I ask you to just stand with me, please, so that we could pray together before leaving here? In the Gospel of John, chapter 13, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Lord, as far as I can tell, this is what you have put on my heart for months. And this is what we've heard this morning. Lord, I pray if there's anything that I have said that is not from you, that you would strike it from our ears. But if there is truth in what I say, and if that truth comes from you, Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. I pray that you would give us soft hearts. I pray that you would give us courage to seek your scriptures and then to change, however you need us to change. Lord, help us not be alone in this, but let us come together as one body, brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, parents and children, helping each other out of our situations, out of our sin. Lord, I pray that you would bless the families here, that you would keep us wherever we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul calls us together in unity, husbands, wives, parents, and children, to submit to one another as adopted members of God's family, filled with the Holy Spirit, and to live our lives fully conformed to the life of Jesus. We can do that together, RBC. I wish you a great day. Thank you.